13, please. Hebrews 13. Hopefully you've got a Bible there in front of you. I don't think the words are going to be on the screen today, and so grab one of those in front, grab your phone, whatever it is that you use. We're only going to be reading two verses, and this will conclude our study in the book of Hebrews. We have been there since last September. I went back and looked. I didn't think it had been that long. Uh, but we've been in this book for 10 months, and I do hope that you have been encouraged by what you have read here. I have been astounded by whoever wrote this letter, the knowledge that, that he had to communicate the truths of the Old Testament and relate them to the person of Jesus Christ. I have been amazed, and I hope that uh, the Holy Spirit has encouraged you as well as you have learned the truths about what Jesus came to accomplish for us specifically in his death. That was dealt with more than anything else in this book, dealing with his sacrifice as our great high priest and being our temple. Like how wonderful it is, all the good theology that has been in this book that is meant to encourage our hearts to trust Jesus practically, to live practically following him. So again, verses 20 and 21, let's read together. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book. Please encourage us today with your word as we close it out. This beautiful doxology, this benediction, this final praise to you that is meant to evoke confidence in your people to call upon you, knowing that you are at work in us powerfully. Not only did you work powerfully in Jesus at the cross, you say you continue to work powerfully in your people through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Make us strong in faith to continue trusting in him all the way home. It is a hard road out there. May we look to Christ and be able to have victory in every circumstance in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. During the Great Depression... The federal government wanted to ensure that the American people would never again make a run on the banks like they did in 1929. Up until that point, more than one-third of the banks in our country failed, and so a lot of money was lost. And so people had a bit of doubt as they put their money in the banks. They thought maybe it would be better just to put their money underneath their mattress, and many of them did. To restore faith in the banking system, the government established what is known as the FDIC. And maybe you've seen the little signs in the banks that you go into. It'll say FDIC insured. I think when I was a kid, it would say $100,000 was insured. Now it is actually up to $250,000. But it's called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And what it is is that the government, the government promised to back the deposits that were made in member banks. And so if the bank somehow loses your money through their own mismanagement, and that still does happen if you watch the news. Banks still do mismanage money and fold up. But if your money is in one of those banks, you will not personally lose a dime. And because people trusted their government to do what they say, 
at least to reimburse their money. Nothing like the bank runs of 100 years ago have ever happened again. And so faith in the banking system was restored by confidence in the federal government. Faith is strengthened by confidence. Faith is strengthened by confidence. We don't generally put faith in those things or in those people who don't inspire confidence, the kind of people who don't fulfill their word. You know the kind of people? You've been burned a couple of times. You've lost confidence in that person. And now you have committed yourself, maybe, maybe not made a pact, but somehow in your mind that, that is there, that you will never trust that person the same way again. And so now when they tell you that they're going to be there or they're going to do that, you just plan as though they won't because you have no confidence in them. The passage that is in front of us has within it that kind of purpose. It is there to show us that we are able, more than able, to have confidence in our God and that we should continue to put faith in Him even when things get hard or when things do not go our way. Because as you know, life does get hard. Sin presses in. Satan is at work. We'll be tempted to doubt. And God has proven that he is worthy of our confidence. He's given us no reason to doubt. We can continue on in faith. And so if you've been paying attention in this book, you know that again and again the drumbeat has been have faith. Look back to those people who have finished the race in faith. You be those people who continue to walk forward in faith, finishing yours. Continue to look to this God. He inspires confidence in us based on what he has done, and we should know we can continue to have faith in him. He's proven it by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But he also continues to show it in the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. He's there in heaven, continues to minister as our priest, providing to us everything that we need today. And so not only did God do everything necessary for your salvation through Jesus Christ at the cross, he promises to provide everything you need presently in him as well. And so this is a prayer, these two verses, of confidence in our great God. Look with me at the descriptions that are given of God the Father and his Son. First there in verse 20 we see, now may the God of peace. Of all the ways that he could have described God here, he describes him as the God of peace when he closes. Now I wonder if we asked a hundred people in the neighborhood right here around the church to describe God, if any would use an adjective like this. He is the God of peace. Not simply that he is serene and calm or peaceful. We're not talking about his disposition here. We're talking about his aim in relationship. He is the God who has sought and accomplished peace with those who were in rebellion against him. He is the God who makes peace in relationship with men. 
When two armies seek peace with one another, they make a pact. They come together and they make an agreement that they will both lay down their arms, agreeing to a list of concessions. I won't shoot at you anymore if you don't shoot at me. Our armies won't cross this boundary if yours do not cross it either. They come together and they make concessions. But when God made peace with us, it was one-sided. We were incapable and without any desire for a treaty. Our hearts knew nothing but war with God because sin touches everything that we do. And so what did he do? He took it completely on himself to make peace. He made the sacrifice, every bit of it, so that we can have peace with him. He sent his son. We did not. God made peace. And to have him, which is what we get when we receive Jesus, we get God. And when we receive him, we get peace, because that is what he is. He came for us when we were running in the other direction. And so do not think of salvation as a two-way street. God doing his part, we doing ours. No, salvation was accomplished out of the heart of God and out of the action of a God who is love, who came to break the spell of sin in the death of his son. He did that for us. We simply receive it as the gift that it is. Secondly, notice what we're told about Jesus. God is the God of peace, the Father. Peace. And here we're told our Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. God has a flock. And he's given the sheep of that flock into the care of a great shepherd. It is good to be a sheep in Jesus' field under his watchful eye. That is the best place to be. There might be times when you feel like that you're out there wandering on your own, times when you feel like you are in danger. But if you were staying close to this shepherd, the one who is described as the great shepherd, you have no safer place that you could be, and you are not on your own. You have a great shepherd who will lose none, not one, who has been entrusted to him. He purchased each of these sheep at the cross by name with his own blood. And the purchasing power of that blood, we are told here, is eternal. Notice that we are, see the covenant is described as an eternal covenant. That shows how much value there is in the blood of this lamb. Jesus did not buy you for a certain period of time, a short period of time. His blood does not have an expiration date. His ownership does not last for a season. You will not be traded. You don't need to renew your contract to stay in his field. Once you are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, you belong to him forever. His blood has sealed you into an eternal covenant with him, eternal covenant with him. A covenant that joins you in a bond of peace with God, the Father, 
through the death and resurrection of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of you. Sheep will do as sheep will do. And from time to time they get funny thoughts in their heads. They wander off. They do dumb things from time to time. But the most important thing about these sheep is not found in their own personal qualities, but in the quality of the one who cares for and protects them. That is the main thing about these sheep. The most important thing about you is who you belong to. And so again, this description evokes confidence in him to encourage us to trust that we have a great shepherd. Even when we cannot feel his presence, we should know that he is always there caring for his flock and you will not slip out of his hand. You need to trust him. You and I could not be in better hands. And the proof is there in the salvation given to us by the God of peace as he placed us into the care of a great shepherd. And the confidence that we're inspired to have as we see the power of God in saving us is meant to lead us to trust in that same God who promises to keep on providing for our spiritual needs after we first trust in him. And so God does not just birth new Christians. He promises to grow them too. We would find it very strange, will we not, if a new mom was only interested in giving birth to her child. Well, there you go. You're out there in the open now. Good luck to you. It'd be very strange, would it not? No, any good mom knows that she not only gives birth to the child, that that was just the beginning. There's a long road ahead, a long road of care that she is committed to giving to that little baby. She's going to grow him or her into maturity. And so God provides for your salvation in Jesus Christ. He births you by the power of the Holy Spirit, but then he continues to provide what you need for growth in Jesus Christ too. He doesn't leave you on your own. And this prayer is a promise that God does not just have the heart and the power to begin the work which would be pretty tremendous of itself, would it not? God is able to reverse my course, to crucify sin in me, to bring about new life in me, to give faith to me, to believe the gospel of his son. That is a tremendous thing that he is able to do. But he's not simply committed to that. He is going to finish the work. The God who began it will finish it in Christ Jesus. And so this is a prayer that tells us that God is not only able to start it, he has the heart and power to begin it, but also to end it by bringing us into full maturity. And we're told here, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. So he is at work providing in us all that we need to do his will. And he doesn't simply want you to do his will. He doesn't hope that you will do his will. He promises that he will give you everything that you need to actually do it. You are not on your own. He does not leave you to yourself and the resources that you have in and of yourself. 
Augustine said this many centuries ago. He said, oh, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. So not only is he saying that God will command what he wills to take place, God promises to give what he has commanded. He is that kind of God. And he prays that prayer because that is what God promises. And what a comfort it should be to all of us that the Lord does not leave us to ourselves. He promises grace for every need that you have. Every need that you have. What kind of things does God will? What does he will? And I'm not talking about the mysterious things that our minds go to when we think about God's will. Things like, who should I marry? Where should I live? Should I take this job or that job? And so we plead with God, oh God, please make known to me your will. That's the way we often use the word. But that is not what is in view here. This is the kind of will that God has made clear to us in his word. And we have had several of these wills or commands come up, even recently in chapter 13. And so I asked again, what is it that God wills for your life? He tells us. Look with me. I hope that you've got a Bible open. Just look back to chapter 13, verse 1, and follow along with me. Do you want to know the will of God for your life? Look what he says. Verse 1, this is the command of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison that are being mistreated. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. No sexual immorality or adultery. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Verses 15 and 16, he commands us to give praise and have hearts of gratitude for what he has done. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Just a small sampling here of what God's word commands. This is the will of the Lord for you. Again, so often we say, I don't know what God wants for my life. He wants this. We often think about those mysterious things, those things that we just cannot know, and often they'll remain hidden from our view. And we'll look back and marvel at what God has done providentially. But if you want to know what God wills for your life, this is it. It's clear. It's revealed. God does not want to make it hard on you. He's not making it a maze for you to figure out or a puzzle to be unwound. God tells us what his will is. And this is what his desire, and he says that he will equip us to do what we read here. He has not left us on our own. He tells us what to do, and then he provides for us to do it. We live across the street from a Rite Aid. Our family does, which is both a blessing and a curse. 
You know, we always have right across there something that we need, but it's marked up double, you know? You're kind of weighing, should I go to Rite Aid or not? Well, often we do. And we'll send our kids over there to buy something with regularity. And if we tell them to go over there and buy paper towels, implicit in that command is that I will give them the resources to complete the task. If I didn't, they would just look at me like, all right, money, please. Because they don't have the resources on their own. If God gives commands to his children, he's telling us here that he will provide the ability to carry them out. He is a good father, much better than me. And he provides the ability to do his will by the power of the Holy Spirit that he has placed inside of us. He has not left us on our own. He has given us his spirit, his desire, and something of his power inside of his children. God's power has been put in you the moment that you believe the gospel. And so if you fail to obey, it is because you chose not to use the power and grace that God has made readily available to you. So you chose not to give brotherly love. You chose to be greedy. You chose to dishonor the marriage bed. You chose not to submit to your leaders. Grace was there to be had for all of his children, for you. But you hardened your heart. And so you and I, as born-again followers of Christ, simply cannot give the excuse that we are not able to do what God wills. Oh, Lord, I, I just can't do that. I just can't do it. No, you don't want to do it. But you have the promise here that you certainly can do it. Because he has not only willed that you would do these things, he has provided the power in his spirit. Does any particular sin have its roots deep down in your heart right now? Are you ruled by lust? God wills purity. What about discontentment? Anyone ruled by that? God wills gratitude. Oh, but Lord, I just can't be grateful. What about bitterness? God wills forgiveness. What about hate? God wills love. So when you get right down to it, as you examine your own heart, you see the sin that is there. You need to also see the power of God that is being promised that is there too. That God does not simply will your work or your good. 
he will work in you everything necessary, we're told here, to do what is pleasing to him. You are able because he is making you able. We are a garden that God is constantly tending to, constantly at work, planting in us the things that he wants to bloom. He is the master gardener. And the key to this statement about him working in us that which is pleasing to him is where it says, through Jesus Christ. And so as we keep our eyes on Christ, as we grow in love for him, as we learn to depend on him as our great shepherd, approach his throne as our powerful king, receive from God by Jesus' work as our high priest, as we learn to look to Jesus as our all-sufficient everything in the plan of God, God promises to do a work in the garden of our hearts, planting in us that which is pleasing to him. So that we will begin to do these things that please him more and more naturally. They will be more second nature over time. So doing what pleases God will become more natural, but we will know that the ability to do those things is actually supernatural because they are happening in us by the power of God that he is working. And when you understand that, what should your response to God be? We're told here, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. When we understand that God has not only took it upon himself to save us, God has also taken it upon himself to complete the work by providing everything that we need, our response should be one of continual praise. God, you are so good to me. It's the next time that you obey the will of God, hopefully today, the next time you do what is pleasing to him, you need to rejoice in this God because he is the one who has made that possible. You simply did not do it on your own. It is the result of God's power in you, shaping you into the image of his son. And so as we close today, just a couple of questions. Are you confident in your God as we prepare to leave. This God who is mentioned here, the God of peace, who took it upon himself to make peace, entrusting you into the care of a great shepherd, do you realize that you are a sheep in his flock and all of your needs truly are being met? Maybe not all your wants, but he's preparing you for an eternal place in his kingdom. He's going to make you ready. And the field that you are eating in, the field that you are being led through, the still waters that you are being given to lay down beside, they are the product of having a great shepherd. 
And the God who not only provided for your salvation, we are told, is giving us everything that we need to do his will. Will you lean on him this week and not make excuses for sin, but look to Jesus Christ to crucify them and carry out the will of God, rejoicing in the one who has made your obedience possible. So as we close this book of Hebrews, do you have faith in this God? And are you firmly planted behind him all the way? All the way home? I certainly hope so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who it tells us that you are. We do not get to define you. You tell us who our God is. And you tell us that you are a God of peace, no matter what any man out there thinks. People like to cast stones at you, giving definition to who you are. You tell us that you are the one who makes peace. You had every right, and you would have been perfectly just to have left us on our own in our sin. But you have chosen, God, because you are a God of peace, to make peace by the blood of the cross. And so, Father, we want to give you praise, praise that you deserve, glory that will be given to you, rippling through time in eternity for what you have done for us in Christ. And you have given us to not merely a shepherd, not to a good enough shepherd, not one who is capable of just doing the work. He is the great shepherd who carried out the work on our behalf and continues to lead us and guide us through wonderful fields toward heaven. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. May that truly be rooted in our hearts and not just lip service this morning. Give us gratitude that we can be sheep in his field. And God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who we're being told about here is at work in us, bringing about all the good that you desire to do inside of us. We desire to do what is pleasing, and you promise God to provide the ability to do what is pleasing by the Spirit of God. You have so taken care of your people. You have left nothing undone. There are no loopholes. There are no weaknesses, no cracks in the foundation. We are secure in Christ. And may we have perfect confidence in him so that we can walk by faith all the way home to our Savior. So that we won't be looking by faith into eternity. We will have new eyes to see Jesus at that time. And your people look forward to that time. And we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ.